0: So just as a little introduction, my name is Sam Powdrell, I work with the, hang on, this is coming in and out here, can you all hear now? Okay, maybe that, there, let's try that, maybe that will help it, is that better? Alright, okay. Um, my name is Sam Powdrell and uh, I teach at the University of Kentucky, but I've actually spent most of my life in missions. Uh, I, uh, grew up in India and my parents were missionaries and then we went back after we were married to India, then Honduras, and then we spent 14 years at Tenwick Hospital in, in Kenya. And, uh, we actually started there 25 years ago. I started the I unit there on April 1st, uh, which <laughs> I said, only fool would start on April 1st, right? Um, so, um. And that was in 1991, 25 years ago this year. So it's really it's it's uh, it's been an interesting journey. Um, the unit now is probably the I'm, it's probably the largest unit in West, Af- West uh, Western Kenya. Okay, um, the largest eye unit. They do oh, upwards of 2,000 eye surgeries a year there now. Um, I. I want to talk a little bit about just kind of developing a program because when I got there, there was two empty rooms, Uh, there was an eye chart uh, in one corner that was not being used, and there was a slit lamp that didn't go up and down, Um, it was fixed, and so my first job was to repair the slit lamp, which I did. Uh, The slit lamp, I always said, was my first patient. Um, So that was kind of the beginning um, of, of the eye unit there at Tenwick. Um, but there was much more to developing it than just making a clinic, because this was an area that had, had very little eye care. Um, I went there as a nurse, and later uh ophthalmologist taught me a lot of surgical skills. I had taken some eye training uh, in London, and uh, bit by bit, I actually did my surgical training in Kenya. Uh, so I'm actually a PA, a physician assistant, that does eye surgery, so I still go back every year or... Um, a couple times a year to do surgery somewhere. So, um, Some objectives I just want to look at quickly. We want to consider uh, some of the demographics, the epidemiology and demographics of an area. And it's important to do that before you start um, plowing into any kind of clinic, really. But it's a good idea, and it's, I think it's particularly true for eye care. It's important. Uh, identify some of the challenges and barriers that eye health and development um, programs have um, and uh, um, find out what sort of prevention of blindness is in the country many countries, most countries have a prevention of blindness um, committee in the country uh, some are more functional than others okay, as you would probably expect but that's a great place to start and it's a great place to get some information um, then think about um, how you're going to approach the problems that you face. And um, I think we want to talk a bit about appropriate, what's appropriate for a country, what's low cost, admissions, uh, we often can't afford the really expensive equipment to do something because our patient base won't support it. Um, and, uh, and so that's another thing that we think about. Um, so I'll, I'll go ahead here. So we were in uh, eastern, um, sorry, western Kenya, near, down near the Maasai Mara, which the Mara, I'm a little bit of afraid of how far I can go with this. The Mara is down, um, is down in this area right here, Maasai Mara, and we were just above it. I think if I click there, I should get an arrow. Okay, um, so there's where Tenric Hospital is, and those other little uh, red lines i tell you the different uh, uh, language groups that we were with. So there was, in that area, I worked with about five different language groups. I didn't learn all those languages, believe me. Um, but uh, Swahili is sort of all over the country. But uh, I, um, we were in the Kipsigis area, but our I unit really went into all of those areas. We went clear up into Pokot, uh, into Kisi, Maasai, all of those areas. And each one is a different tribal group. So let's look at community assessment just for a minute. So on a world base, um, that's kind of what we're looking at. There's about 39 million blind, but 285 million that have some sort of low vision. It's a huge number. Um, So visually impaired at some point. And so 246 of those have got low vision. They may not be blind. And uh, when we say blind here, we're going by WHO standard, which is, for those of you that do eye stuff, 2,400, okay. Uh, here in the States, uh, legal blindness is 2,200. So uh, we, we, uh, so actually that number could be a lot bigger if we go by a U.S. standard. Um, here's some of the causes of blindness worldwide. And you might be surprised to see cataract at the top of the list because here everybody gets their cataract done and uh, you almost never see a blind person uh, in, in our communities here from cataract. Occasionally, but not usually. Um, Glaucoma is something that is on the increase. Macular degeneration is on the increase. Both of those probably because of aging populations. Um, And uh, then corneal things, and these are things like um, corneal scars from measles, Uh, from vitamin A deficiency and some of those things. I've actually got vitamin A down at the bottom. But uh, these are things that are decreasing, thankfully, and some of that's because of immunizations, um, a better diet, and that sort of thing. Diabetic retinopathy is on the rise worldwide, and it's interesting. When I first went to Tenwick, I never saw a case of diabetic retinopathy. Uh, That's uh, now... We're doing uh, a lot of lasers for for the um, diabetes, um, and uh, the surgeon that's there now is a retinal surgeon, <laughs> and he does a lot of retinal surgery, some of which is diabetic. Um, what happened? What changed uh, in the last three or five years is that when I went there, people that had diabetes it was a fatal disease. They died. They died of ketoacidosis. They died. Um, now. We've, uh, with the, the advances with humulin insulin, where we can, uh, they don't, it doesn't have to be refrigerated. They can take it home, and they can take their insulin. Um, and so, um, so, both type 1 and type 2, uh, if you're putting type 2s on diabetes, uh, we are keeping them alive. And so, they're living long enough to get diabetic retinopathy, which is an interesting, interesting thing to observe. So, if you're looking at, at, um, at your area, you need to ask, is, this, is something like diabetes being controlled or is it not? Um, if it isn't, you may not see that di- much diabetic retinopathy. They may maybe like our case where they actually passed away. Um, refractive errors are a huge deal. Um, it's, it's sort of the big chunk of things of low vision that isn't being dealt with worldwide. It is in some places, but in many places it's not. So this When I say refractive errors, that just means people need glasses, okay? And so there's a huge need for glasses worldwide. Trachoma, thankfully, is something that's decreasing. It used to infect 600 million people worldwide. Um, It's something that's on the decrease, greatly on the decrease. And um, onchocerciasis, I'll say that again, onchocerciasis is on the decrease because of a lot of the efforts of World Health Organization. And vitamin A is decreasing as well. Okay, 80% of developing world blindness is actually avoidable. About 60% is treatable. Most of that is cataract, okay? Uh, And then the preventable are the things like vitamin A deficiency, measles, and um, childhood blindness, some of those kinds of things. Um, In the last few years, there's been a lot of good advances through uh, the work, international work that has gone on. Um, Ivermectin is the drug that was developed uh, for onchocerciasis, and I was actually in Sierra Leone when that transition happened from some other drugs, one of which caused blindness and the other caused death. So those aren't very good options. (coughs) But Ivermectin came along, and it has transformed what's happening in West Africa, uh, thankfully. There is some other pockets of of onco in the world. Uh, There's a couple of places in Africa, a couple in South America. But um, by and large, it's a West African problem. Um, The rise of M6. Um, M6 stands for Manual Small Incision Cataract Surgery. Okay, it's a big mouthful. And since we don't like to say that, we just abbreviate it. Um, 1990s, I actually started doing M6 probably around 1996. So I didn't know it, but I was early on in the game. And now in the literature, there's a lot of interest in the M6 surgery, and one of the things I've been doing is actually going down with docs to different countries and help them learn to do the M6, um, uh, as, because we're doing, we, it's, not, it's not a procedure that's typically done here, uh, though there is a very, um, an ophthalmologist, in Glenn Strauss, who does it in Texas uh, for, for, an in, for an indigent clinic, and he's, um, it's very interesting, he's, He's a surgeon, but he does an excellent job with M6 as well. Um, The the availability of low-cost glasses, um, it depends where you are in the world, but most places you can get some sort of low-cost glasses. And one of the things is injected molded lenses. Uh, These are made in China. These lenses can be be purchased for somewhere between 50 cents and a dollar, uh, maybe between 50 cents and a dollar 50 and so glasses can be made very cheaply. It's just a matter of finding those and, and connecting with it. The introduction of SAFE, um, that's, that's uh, a WHO, World Health Organization, push to, uh, to combat trachoma. And that is just um, so surgery, um, the um, antibiotics, face washing, and then the environment. So those are, that's what that stands for, safe. And those are areas that have been pushed uh, for, for that. And that's part of the reason why trachoma has drastically dropped, which is great. Uh, many in rural Africa are blind. Um, um, out of 100 people, one's blind. Three have significant loss of vision. And uh, two of these could see again with surgery. That's, uh, those are big numbers. They really are big numbers. And the interesting thing is, one is blind out of every 100 people. There's three more that are disabled, either physically, mentally. Um, uh, there's some sort of disability, 4% of the population. That's huge. It's really huge. Um, and these are, these are significant um, uh, disabilities. So why, why is there so much blindness? Uh, Is it just people get more cataracts in Africa uh, than they do here? And actually, no, it isn't. So just very quickly, and I'm not going to spend a long time on this diagram, but just a little bit of epidemiology. Incidents are your new cases that come in every year. So think of this like a sink, okay? You have a tap with water coming in. You have a drain with water going out the bottom, all right? And then you've got water in the sink, um, so the incidence is like the water coming into the sink, the new cases every year. The prevalence are the cases that are already existing. Okay? And then the sink going out the bottom are the ones that either get surgery or they die. All right? So that's basically what that uh, represents. Uh, in the United States, I'll uh, give a comparison, um, one, about one in a thousand is, is, is blind. Uh, in Africa, it's about one in a hundred, all right? Um, these figures may have changed a little bit, but that's close. Uh, there's about one eye doctor for every 20,000 people here. Um, there was one eye doctor for a million in Africa. Uh, so there's about roughly 300 for the whole continent. Um, probably Kentucky has more than that. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's huge, um, we look at the population sort of as a million. We, if you take the, a million people, and that was um, about what I had at Tenwick, uh, you take a million people, there's roughly 6,000 people uh, develop cataracts every year out of that million. Okay? Here in the States, we basically operate 6,000, so 5,800 somewhere in that, in that neighborhood. In Africa, they're operating 300 for every million people. So the amount of incidents, new cases coming, is almost exactly the same worldwide. Um, but the number that are getting operated on is very different. So here's just a profile of uh, blindness in, in Africa, or Western Kenya, let me say that, but it is similar for the rest of Africa. About 50% cataract, uh, this is causes of blindness. Um, then there's glaucoma, there's some corneal uh, issues, and then all of the other things like your diabetic retinopathies and the retinal detachments and whatever else that you've got in there, macular degeneration, which, by the way, that, that 10% is on the rise because of macular degeneration, though that is something that's pretty, pretty uncommon in, um, in Africa. Okay, so the estimated profile where I uh, worked, remember those different areas? You saw those different language areas. Pokot was up at the top. Maasai was down at the bottom. So Maasai is interesting because that's where everybody goes to visit the animals. But healthcare is horrible. So it's, there's a lot of money going through that area, but it's not getting to the right places, um, and sadly so. And a lot of my clinics were right across the top edge of the Maasai Mara. There was a 1,000-foot drop onto the Mara. And the Mara River went there, and along that Mara River were all the very expensive hotels, um, uh, the safari clubs, for the, where all just thousands and thousands of, of tourists come every year to see the animals. A thousand feet up on the plains, they were destitute. Um, it is really tragic to, to, to know that. Okay, so what's the challenge? So we had a, a roughly a million people in the catchment area for eye care in Tenwick, uh, 1% was blind, 1% was severely impaired. And if you want to get an idea of these numbers, it varies between a half a percent, 1% in the developing world. Uh, there's a lot of surveys that have been done in the past, uh, population based surveys, and that's where you can get some of that information. So kind of look at your population and say, um, how many, what percentage is blind? And then from that, look at the visually impaired. Um, uh, half of those are going to be from cataract. And then just to give you an idea, your incidence is going to be about 20% of whatever your prevalence is. So whatever's in the, in the basin, all right, the water in the basin, the prevalence, uh, about 20% more is being added each year. Now, some of that's being lost to death. Some of it's being lost to uh, or going out with... Um, Surgery, But that's sort of how you can judge your community if you're in a developing situation. So in, um, in our area, we had roughly 2,000 cases of cataract surgery to do annually. So why, uh, why is it 2,000? Well, people have two eyes, right? So that's how we ended up with that, um, and that's roughly, roughly how I estimated that. Um, and for many years, I was the only one there. Um what's some other reasons that people don't have cataract surgery? One is that there aren't the people to operate on it. The other thing is that uh, there's, there's factors that keep them from coming, and these are some of them. Availability of the service, so we don't have a surgeon. Um, bad outcomes. So in many places, people have done poor surgery, and if one person goes back to their community and they went blind because of the surgery, they may have already been blind because of the cataract, but they are irreparably blind, that whole community is going to be affected and probably nobody more is going to come for cataract surgery. Okay. Um, so bad outcomes, cost. Many places, they just can't afford it. Okay. Um, distance, so travel issues, trying to get a person that can't see their hand in front of their face, uh, that hasn't had mobility training, to get them... S- Miles away to a hospital where they can get uh, surgery can be a huge effort for the family. One of the things in cost is not just the cost, but where the distribution of the cost is in the family. So do I get a surgery for my elderly uh, grandparent that I don't know whether they're going to see again, or do I put a kid through school? And so what do you do? Do I put food on the table? And so it's a distribution of the cost. Um, And most of us don't even have a clue of of what that really means, having to come down to those kinds of decisions. An escort means somebody to take them. And then there's a huge thing of fear. What's it really going to be like? And uh, I can't tell you how many times I'd hear the story. They would say, oh, uh, you go in there, you go in the room, and he takes your eye out and he puts it on the table and he works on it and he puts it back in again. Well, I I tried to, I tried to dissuade that kind of, uh, stories going around, but you know what? They still go around. And people hear those, and they only need to hear about one or two of those stories, and they're not gonna come back again, right? No one else is gonna come. So fear is a big factor. So good education. So how do we deal with that? How do you set up an I unit with that kind of, with what I've just described here? High numbers. Little service, transport issues, fear, lack of education, all kinds of things. How do you set up a service in that? And that's what I was faced with at Tenwick. Um, and the first thing is to build trust. Now, the one thing that I had going for us, really had going for us, Tenwick had been there for 50 years. It was a trusted hospital. And it made a huge difference to try and set up a service in an area where there was trust. We had all of the things that I just mentioned, but at least we had a starting point, and that was great. And so Mission Hospitals, I think, are on the forefront when it comes to being trusted hospitals worldwide. They're excellent hospitals. Um, there's, most of them have training programs that are, that are you know, outstanding in the countries that they are in. Um, many of them build really good community rapport. They share spiritual things with their care, and, and I think that makes a huge difference to the care that's given. And then you have dedicated cl- clinicians and staff. Now, is there no bad people in these hospitals? Of course there are. There are people that give poor care. But by and large, I think you'll find uh, worldwide that medical, uh, Mission Medical is, is huge. And if you look at the people that come to this conference, many of whom have their sights on missions, look at the quality and the lives of the people that are in this conference that are headed that direction, I think it tells the story. And I think, um, so I just want to encourage you if you're headed that way, um, you are taking with you a tool of trust and going into an area that can have a huge difference. So start with good communication. What does the community think is the biggest need? Okay. Uh, what are the big needs? Um, how can we partner with the community? So we did a lot with community health starting out. And I'm going to have to kind of go through quick, a bit more quickly here. So a lot of people have poor access to health. And this is how a lot of people came to the clinic. So what do you see in this picture? What do you see happening here?
1: Boy, Lily, old woman
0: yep. Okay. And so how much school is this boy going to? Okay. He's, not, he's missing out on school. So the problem is perpetuated for another generation. Okay. It's a transport issue. Right. Remember that escort at the end that I mentioned was one of the things? Here's the escort. Okay. So, so how do we work with the community? So here we are teaching them. This was when we had a lot of trachoma. We had a lot of trachoma just south of us in the Maasai area, uh, south of Tenwick and in the Pokot area. So we taught the kids how to do just simple face washing. And we had a leaky bucket. We had a little plug in it, and we'd, we'd open the plug, let them get a handful, wash their face. And we'd get 30 kids out of a little container like this. And that's what we, we'd have them hang in a container in the school. And every morning we had the teachers try and help them wash their face. And it was helping reduce trachoma because they were the ones, the early school kids are the ones that had active trachoma. Okay, so kind of looking at it, um, this is something that came from alma Ata back uh, in 87 um, and with a view to health for all by the year 2000. So just sort of summarizing it was make your care available. Make it acceptable to the people, something they can deal with that works for them. Make it appropriate. Don't take high-tech stuff where the population can't afford it. Uh, you don't have people to fix it. Uh, it's expensive to buy in the first place. And then make your service affordable. Um, Many mission hospitals are heavily subsidized. One of the things that faces a lot of mission hospitals is that they are trying to bring more national um, providers into into the hospital, less mission. And with that comes the cost issue because you've got to pay these people. They're not raising their own support back in America, okay? And so that, that drives the cost up for the patient in many mission hospitals. The other thing I did was uh, we started community clinics, and we worked in a lot of areas. And here's one of our clinics with all those people that have a stick. They're old, and half of them are blind, all right? And so <laughs> that's, that's what we dealt with many times. Advertising is a big deal. I never realized it, but we got a bus, and we put Tenwick Hospital We Treat Jesus Heals on the side of the bus. And I never realized it, as I drove all over the country. Literally thousands of people heard about Tanukai unit, and I never said a thing. And I'd pull up to a stop sign, and they'd come up to me, Tari, <laughs> and, and I'd say, oh, okay, all right. So I did a lot of sidewalk <laughs> consults. But the point is, advertising is important. And these are some of the places we advertise. Local leaders, health workers, village and town centers, um, on the public transport. So you put some flyers in the little matatus. Those are the little um, Toyota uh, pickup trucks with a back on them. They go all over the country. And you put some flyers in, give them to the driver, and he passes them out to his people and tell when there's going to be an eye clinic. Schools are great because who reads in the country? It's the kids. And many times the elder people don't. They'll go home and they'll practice their reading and read that flyer to their older uh, grandparents. So churches are another place. Pastors are, uh, we found were generally very good about announcing when an eye clinic would be coming by and pass the word along. So make simple flyers. Sometimes radio is available. Uh, make as many personal contacts as you can. Um, and I found that there was a sort of a window. If you went more than three weeks, they forgot about it. If you went less than... Uh, three weeks, they always said, oh, we have to go find money, (laughs) okay, Uh, for transport and whatever to get there. Um, And we generally charged a little fee. Uh, We were heavily subsidized, um, so we sort of covered some of our ongoing costs. But uh, we also had a poor patient fund for those that couldn't afford it. And so people weren't turned away just because of money. And I think that's very important that you have a mechanism for that. Mobile clinics. Mobile clinics can be very helpful. They can also be a double-edged sword. Um, the um, the the cost of running a mobile clinic. There's a lot of hidden costs to it. Um, I I know sometimes I would go to a clinic. I might drive six hours, and there would be ten patients there. Well, that's a huge cost. You've packed up all your stuff. You've taken all your staff. You've lost a day of clinic at the hospital. You've lost a surgery day. And you had ten people there. Okay. So um, it can be a double-edged sword doing. So it's really important that you really work with these clinics. And so I had sort of some cut-off points. I would start with a new area. And when you first start, you're not going to get many people until they find out. It was always interesting to me. There would be three people show up that had operable cataract. The next morning, I'd do the first one. Next thing I knew, there was 20 at the door. So they wanted to see if the first one was going to see again. All right. And that was interesting that that happened. And it happened almost every mobile clinic that we did. And uh, so you better do a good job on that first case um, because that's what, how it worked. Okay, so the mobile clinic does increase the compliance because you're right there. You screen and right away do the surgeries. I often say you probably get your surgery done quicker in Africa than you can, in, especially in Europe and, and, and even here in the States. They give you a waiting list and you come back in three weeks or whatever and get your surgery. So, um, you know, when we do mobile clinics, we screen. and We might start operating that afternoon or the next morning. And so they get their surgery done immediately. Um, if possible, if you have the facility, it's a lot better when you have a clinic to go do your screening in the community and then transport your people back in. Um, so that's a, that's a good thing. Here's a lady that walked six days through the bush. She was blind, couldn't see her hand in front of her face. She, her son lit her with the stick like you saw earlier there. Um, and this was her reaction when she was seeing again. And after she quit dancing and settled down a bit, she looked way in the distance. She said, that mountain there is where my home is. And it was a pretty touching scene. This lady couldn't see her hand in front of her face the day before. And that was pretty, pretty amazing. Needless to say, the next morning I got a lot of patience. <laughs> and sadly, what would often happen is they'd show up the day you were leaving and you didn't have an operating day left to work with them because you, I always left a screening day. Um, I'm sorry, a post-op day the last day so we could make sure that everybody was doing well. This is the bus that we had and so we would take our staff there, we'd do our clinics. Um, I actually designed this uh, bus, I bought it as a cabin chassis so if you go out to do eye work and set up a clinic you may end up making buses, I don't know how that works but um, so this was a huge and there's our sign on the side um, and we would, we, this was made, it's a 30-seater bus, we could take all our equipment, we could take it and do a surgery um, in a rural area, or we could transport patients back in. And so we did either one. Um, and so this was a huge help to us. Um, start with a basic service and then build. That's, I think that's a good thing. Don't try and do the fancy stuff to begin with. Look at where the bulk of your problem is. Okay? Look at those causes of blindness and say, what are the ones I can fix and what can't I? Start with... Um, effective low cost eye drops and um, we actually started making our own Um, it was very interesting at Tenwick they had the injection vials for the antibiotics, they had thousands of these glass vials that they would given injections to the patients in the general hospital Well, what do you do with thousands of glass bottles, where do you dispose of them, do you bury them do you melt them down, what do you do with them well we found the perfect answer We took them all, took the caps off, cleaned them all up, sterilized them, and we made eye drops and found a French company that made a little pet cap that would go right on that. And out of some car valve springs, I made a press that I could press those on, and uh, we distributed our glass all over the community. So did a good service. We didn't have to figure out how we were going to get rid of it. And it comes in three sizes. So what I did, uh, people look at it, and if you only have this much med in it because, and it's a big bottle uh, because it's, uh, it's expensive, right? So you don't put very much in. You only put three cc's or whatever for their eye drops. They'll say, oh, my bottle's only half full. It's missing. I need another bottle. So what I used to do was I had three sizes of bottle. I would put my uh, cheaper meds that we made that cost us less to make in the large bottles and the expensive ones and the small ones. They were all full. I charged the same price, but I differentiated the price because I had a small bottle or a big bottle. And so we passed out meds like that. Um, Have a supply of common, have glasses coming. We worked pretty much with spherical equivalent. Uh, Some of you won't know that term. But a spherical lens, either a minus lens or a plus lens, just a straight sphere, most of your refraction can come within very close to a 20-20 vision with a spherical equivalent. That last little bit, so you might be 20-30, but that last little to 20, um, t- you'll make by correcting it for the astigmatism. Okay? Now, what that does uh, in terms of cost, in many developing countries, that raises the cost of that pair of glasses ten times to put an astigmatism correction. Is it worth that one line on the e-chart? Probably not. Okay? Now, I had people from the towns and the cities that wanted, they were office people, they wanted that really good vision. But for a farmer, does that really make a difference? And that's some of what we dealt with. And so you need to weigh those kinds of costs. So we had a service that we could get the, you know, the exact correction from the city and then what we did and there's different ways of doing this, but if you, if you, if Lions Club sending you glasses frames, um, I didn't try and match somebody to the pair of glasses. I just knocked the glass out, and I edged our own lenses, our spherical lenses, into those frames. Um, edging is a lot easier than doing the surface, than facing it. And so that's what we did. So just some thoughts on that. So um, um, the other thing is keep to basic eye instruments. Don't try and get too fancy. Um, especially at the beginning. Um, Right now at Tenwick, they're doing retinal surgery, and and retinal surgery requires a lot of um, expensive equipment, but it's about 5% of our population. So they're still doing all their cataracts with a simple procedure. They get a few from the towns that want a fancy procedure done with FACO, and they do now have that capability. But we're taking care of the bulk of our population, with low-cost appropriate methods. Um, and then if we have the f- feasibility of doing a higher-cost service, you can, you can charge for that. These are people that are willing to pay for it. Um, and uh, so then we help offset our, our run-of-the-mill cataract surgery, and that's been a help to us, a huge help. Okay. Um, so focus your screening, focus your work on cataract blindness. Here's a man... And uh, you may notice right away that the two pupils look different. Uh, he didn't have a head injury on the right uh, left side, sorry, the right side, uh, he, on his right eye. I dilated it for surgery. But it helps you see the cataract, very dense cataracts. And this is how many, many um, of the patients that you'll see overseas are. It, that some of this is changing. You're getting uh, less dense cataracts. But still, this is a huge, uh, how many of them are. Focus on that, and I'll, t- I'll tell you why. Um, there's a lot of glaucoma. Glaucoma is on the rise, but it's, it's a problem that is very hard to deal with and, and build a clinic on. So don't get into it heavily at the beginning. Head for your 50%, that cataract, that you can do 50% something that you can do something about um, and treat, uh, um, get the surgeries done for those. So good screening. Make sure that uh, you have somebody that can go into the community, find these cataract patients, just simply a visual acuity chart and a flashlight. Um, selection. When you get them in, or, or in the, even at the community level, have good criteria of what you should operate and what you can't operate. Um, so one of the things that I did with that guy that had such dense cataracts, I would take my flashlight, I'd see if the pupils were reacting. And then I did what we call a swinging flashlight test. I'm checking for a difference of the way those two pupils are reacting because I couldn't see the retina to see if there was an optic nerve problem. Okay? So by doing that, the pupil would, uh, um, if I swung to the one, if, if there's an optic nerve problem, when I swung my flashlight to that side, the pupil would dilate because that optic nerve wasn't working. All right. So that was a test, one of the things we used in our, in our selection. So if I got one like that, I didn't operate that eye because I could do a perfect operation. Tomorrow morning, he's not going to see anything, okay, or see poorly. So we tried to avoid those kinds of things. Because remember what I said about the one person going back into the community? You may do a perfect surgery, but if there's something wrong with the retina or the optic nerve, he goes back in and said, they operated on my eye and I'm still not seeing Okay, So selection is a huge deal to building a good eye unit. And then make sure that after the surgery, if there's any kind of refractive problem, more and more we're getting a lot more accurate at getting the right lens in, and lenses are more available, uh, the intraocular lenses. But just make sure that they do have the glasses they need if there's an issue with astigmatism or Correction needs to be done. So I say astigmatism there. A lot of times you can solve it with spherical equivalent, but sometimes with surgery, especially with surgeons that are learning the M6 procedure, you may get more astigmatism and you may have to correct for that. Here's just an M6 surgery. It's an interesting, I wish I had time to show you the whole procedure. Um, I actually have a four-minute video of how you do it, but some of you are not going to want to see that, I can tell you. But we do what we call a frown incision, see where the incision goes, and we make a large tunnel that goes up into here and here. And this ends up being a sutureless incision. Uh, you don't have to put a suture in it because the way we make that tunnel, it, it closes the, the eye. So we're actually not even, we enter the eye right in here, and all of this is tunnel. And... Uh, um, if we have a minute, I could show you that if anyone wants to watch it, but we'll 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 skip that for right now, shall we? <laughs> okay. Some of you are not going to deal with your breakfast well if I show you that surgery. So, um, the manual small incision uh, cataract surgery. It's it's uh, um, with a little practice, it's a good safe uh, procedure, good results. Uh, it's quick. Um, and it's low cost. Very little instruments. Um, And, you know, the the equipment's available. It can be done in the rural areas. I've done this in clinics and um, churches and community centers and schools I've set up, and we've done cataract surgery. And uh, the interesting thing to me, as far as I know, and I don't know all my patients follow up long term, as far as I know, my uh, infection rate, post-op infection rate, is no higher than UK hospital in those areas, which is kind of interesting to me. I will say a lot for, for the immune systems in Africa. They are excellent, and that's, that's part of it, too. And the other thing is God's grace. I really believe that. And we prayed a lot when we would uh, go to do surgery that God would help us do a good job. Okay, um, don't spend a lot of time chasing and managing glaucoma. I can't tell you when I first started how many times I tried to persuade someone with deteriorating glaucoma uh, that they needed to come to the hospital. They'd have a pressure of 35 or 40. I knew they were losing uh, uh, vision On uh, every, time, every time I came to visit, uh, losing another line and that sort of thing. Um, but the problem is If you operate on somebody that has glaucoma, and I say operate because typically in the developing world, we do operate on glaucoma rather than drops because two things happen. The drops are expensive, and they quit taking them. And then you may not see them for three or four months, and then they've lost a lot more vision. So typically when we actually make a diagnosis, we've been doing trabeculectomies. Um, I'm talking to some of the people at UK at the possibility of putting some of the newer tubes and some of those things in, But um, uh, surgery has been sort of our, our, our way to go with glaucoma. Now, the problem with glaucoma surgery is they've lost half their vision. You do the surgery. The only thing it does is keeps them from getting worse, hopefully. All right? Now, if it bleeds while you're doing surgery, they do get worse. They don't get better, very rarely. Occasionally, you have a little bit they may improve a little bit, but it's almost really you, you have to tell your patient they're not going to improve and they may get worse. Now, if I told you I was going to do surgery, you're not going to improve and it might get worse. How enthusiastic are you going to be about having that surgery done? Okay. Now somebody comes and gets a cataract surgery. They go back to their community. They're like that lady. They're dancing. They're waving their hands. All right. Um, and, uh, So that patient may have come earlier, and they told them, it's not very far advanced, wait for a little bit, all right? Now, that person goes home, and they see somebody, oh, I'm starting to have vision troubles, and that cataract patient tells them, no, you wait for a while and then go, because there's no point making two trips. That's a glaucoma patient, and that patient waits. And then they get to the hospital, and they say, Sorry, we can't do anything because you're blind and there's nothing we can do to solve this. What does that do for the community? Better that person had never gone, right? Never heard that information. So be very careful. Glaucoma is a huge problem, and my heart goes out to these people. But it is one that can absolutely kill trying to set up a new uh, eye unit in a clinic in an area, in a rural area. This was a girl that was in her She was in her mid mid to late 20s and was already blind from glaucoma. Just a tragic case uh, in the Pocot area. Um, With the darker races, uh, there's a lot of open-angle glaucoma at young age, um, high pressures. These people go blind very early. Um, I've been down in the Dominican recently, and we're just seeing huge amounts of young people with uh, with open-angle glaucoma, which is normally an older person's uh, glaucoma. Okay. Don't spend a lot of time on itchy eyes. You'll get droves of people coming with itchy eyes, okay? Um, There's little allergy things and and dust and smoke and all kinds of things that aggravate their eyes. Um, And it's like Jesus said, like the poor, they are always with us, right? Um, So itchy eyes are always there, um, and there's loads of them. Um, But you've got to deal with them. If you have a clinic um, and... Oh, something I didn't, I started to mention, didn't. So, when I go to a clinic, a rural clinic, I'll go a couple of times. But if the number of cataracts, operable cataracts, drops below 10% of that clinic, I give that clinic a rest for a while and then come back, you know, maybe a year or two later, okay, and let the numbers build up again. Um, If the numbers going to a rural clinic drop below about 50, now sometimes I don't do that in the first couple of visits, but if they drop below about 50 patients to see, um, I really back off on that clinic because you're only going to get about five operable cases out of that clinic, and you may have driven a long way and a lot of effort and several two or three days of work, and that can be very discouraging. So I I do back off on those. Um, So what I was going to say is that you may get a clinic with 200 people And 180 of them may be itchy eyes, all right? So you want to try and deal with that. And what I used to do, I'd just line them up. I'd say, okay, how many have itchy eyes? And put them all out there. And I would say, this is what it is. You need to do good compresses at home, cold water, splash water through your face when your eyes are itching. Talk to them like that. I would try and look and see which ones looked like they were having the most problem. They were scratching more. Um, and then I would screen those ones. And so I triaged and got through a whole lot of them very quickly and sent them out the door. And I kept a little astringent, something like, uh, like visine, And if they didn't want to just take my advice on the, uh, the cold compresses, I'd give them that. But be very careful. Some people, there's, in the developing world, a lot of steroids are used, steroid drops. You can get into big trouble using steroid drops, okay, Now, there are some cases that need it, but generally, if I'm talking to you, telling you about setting up a unit, do not use steroid drops for itchy eyes. Please don't. Okay, you'll get into a lot of trouble. You can really get into some big trouble with it. One of the things you can do, there are some non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drops available. Those are becoming more available in the developing world, and so those uh, um, um, are, are now more available and those can be helpful though they do burn a little bit when you put them in trachoma um, so this is thankfully is a, we're seeing less and less of this. these so the ones that have had blindness the lashes are turned in it's a real service you can do to do surgery for them so here was a, out in the bush good sterile technique uh, nicely uh, prepared operating room actually no <laughs> so we did a lot of these out in very, very rural, rural areas, um, and that's where you'll find trachoma. And so we did a lot of It is actually an infected case. And so, um, yes, I did the best I could as far as sterile technique, but we did many, many of these. And, uh, and actually, I taught my staff to do it. And so training is a big thing. You really need to keep training. Um, I'm not going to stay on that picture long. You probably don't want that one. Okay, continue what training you your staff. So it turns the lashes back out a, for trachoma. An right, trichoma. yeah, an entropion, upper, upper lid entropion. The lashes turn in, scrub on the eye and cause blindness. Basically, like a brush on the eye, all right? Sorry, this mic is going in and out for you. Um, the... Uh, so um, what we basically do is we make an incision inside the lid, and we, and it's a procedure where we turn the lashes back out again. Um, so here's, a, here's a, a nurse learning to screen for trachoma. And uh, Remember I said the active disease is with the kids. It's the older people that have the blinding disease. This is a man that is now retiring that has been with me from day one uh, at Tenwick. And uh, he's, he's been the backbone of our screening. He's been excellent. So consider consistent training in the clinic and in the surgery. Uh, schedule dedicated time to take your staff away, away from the hospital, somewhere where there's not going to be patients coming in, knocking on the door, somebody needs this or that. Uh, take them away. Spend some quality time training them. Uh, and, then, um, and then train every day in the clinic. You know, as you're, as you're working, show them the pace, uh, cases. Tell them what, you, what you're thinking is, how you're working through the differential diagnosis on that case, so that they learn and can understand what's happening. Involve them in the care. I involve them often um, uh, to find out what was really going on at home and get a good history, because we're working cross-linguistically. And then cross-train your staff. So the guy that ground my glasses also knew how to take visual acuities and do pressures and uh, do visual fields. So I had them so that they could do different jobs. Um, And that's really helpful because you get one out sick or um, you lose one, they move away, and there goes your training with it. So I did a lot of cross-training. Incorporate your spiritual mentoring and character building through your clinic, through your teaching. Because you're a mission hospital. Why are you doing this? Because you're wanting to share the gospel through your ministry and your health ministry. And I Care is a beautiful ministry to do that. I can't tell you how many times we've talked about uh, the next morning as we take those patches off and these people are seeing again. Many of them want to share that experience. And many ophthalmologists go to these places, do a lot of cases, and never take the time to enjoy that moment when those patches come off, and allow that patient to tell other people what's going on. And many times, they actually, the patients may share the gospel with other patients. So that's a great opportunity, and it's missed by many ophthalmologists and many eye units, because they're in a hurry to do their cases. Okay? And it takes time to step back and allow some of that to happen. Sometimes I didn't have the time, so I let my staff, I helped them, encouraged them, to do some of those kinds of things. Um, the other thing is that patients are there. They may be there the night before in the hospital. We always brought ours in the day before. The reason is because of transport issues, and you, that way you knew who you had for surgery the next day, right? So uh, we, we did that, and we really worked with um, them. And they, so they had time. And so we, I had chaplains working with them. Um, I had staff that knew how to minister to the patients. And so that's, that's how we worked with that. Encourage your patients. Many people um, in training, they know how to find the things that are wrong with what somebody's done. But when they do well, take time to encourage them. That's huge in, in, in uh, building a strong staff. Here's a boy that I started as a patient attendant. He's now doing cataract surgery. And it was a thrill to watch him um, Train in the community. Now, I'm kind of running out of time here, but find people in the community that are key people that can help you do your screening. Do, work through your community health organizations to do immunizations. Work through a com- uh, community committee um, the, the, com- the, the community controls. All right? You're not the one in control of that. Let the community control those people. Um, and, um, and then rev- do your work through them don't go barging into a community. Encourage that community, community to get together and then invite you to come and work in their community. You'll go a lot further than if you went in and told them you had this good medicine to give them and they were skeptical about it. Okay? So work through the community. Um, equipment and supplies, just a quick thing here, and then I'm going to have to wind up here, but... A lot of uh, equipment, equipment can be expensive. It can be hard to get in the developing world. Uh, there's a couple of good resources. Out of Hospital in uh, uh, South, Southwest India, South, uh, Southeast India, sorry, is, uh, is an excellent resource for, um, for equipment. Um, but it needs to be maintained. If you take a FACO machine out there, who's going to fix it when it messes up? Who's going to do the regular maintenance on it? The nearest FACO repair person that we had was in South Africa, 2,000 miles away. So, you know, that's not something sustainable. So I can't tell you how many hospitals have got a FACO machine that some American hospital sent from here because it wasn't working quite right, and we think missions can use that. They sent it out. It's sitting in the corner somewhere, an expensive piece of equipment, they can't be maintained, can't be fixed, can't get the tubing for. It's worthless. So avoid getting into that situation. Stay with equipment that's appropriate that you can deal with, okay? And then train your staff to take care of your instruments. I've got instruments at that eye unit at Tenwick that have been there twenty five years. And they're still using them. They're still working. They're still good. Why? Because I taught my staff how to take care of them. And if I go there and operate and I kind of hurriedly lay an instrument down and it bangs against the tray, they say, Daktari, you didn't take care of your instrument. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, sorry. And, you know, you've got to be, you've got to work with them. But that's the key to having good instruments is help your staff to take care of them. And that's really key. Okay. Uh, There's some things, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but you can do some very simple things to help. Uh, repair and maintain uh, surgical instruments. I was actually repairing instruments for four hospitals because there was nobody in Africa, and, or anywhere in that part of Africa, to repair ophthalmic instruments, and they're expensive. So I was doing a lot of that for. So that's something that needs. And then innovation. Keep um, keep uh, working to try and find new ways of, of doing things, new equipment. I'm working on a portable microscope right now, and this is probably a conflict of interest, so I'd better not say much about it. But it actually goes in a suitcase, and I developed it because I knew what I needed in the bush. Is that a mentor? uh, No, it's my own design. (laughs) And we take the head from another one. I built the lighting system. We've made the stand locally. I, uh, I work with a machine shop. And it's actually quite exciting, and it's 50 pounds, uh, and it fits in a suitcase, has video on it. It'll run on a battery for 15 hours. You can operate on a battery. So if you're in an area where there's no electricity, it's perfect. Have you tried solar? Um, I don't need solar. I can charge my battery off solar, but it'll run off 120, 220, um, 110, 220, uh, 12 volt, and, uh, it'll, um, and then off the battery. So I've got a lot of options for running it. Um, oh, boy, I've got a lot more to go. Finances. Uh, work with your finances. Work with your people. Work with cost saving. Um, I'll just cover that quickly. So this is an interesting. We used to have a goat index in, in, uh, in Africa where we would say, uh, find out what the price of the goat in, in, is in that community, and that's about what cataract surgery needs to be. Then somebody could sell their goat. And they had maybe a hundred of them, but they had no cash in their pocket, right? So this was a way that you knew you could, you could cost your, your, um, your cataract surgery. And this was an interesting one, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the cost of a goat. So in Nairobi, a cost of a goat is 3,000 shillings. In the rural area, it's 300. So you're stratifying your cost to your community, and that's an interesting one. A lot I could say about that. You're going to find that the price of cataract surgery um, oh, sorry, this is really dark, is about $100 in a, a surgery. Um, that's, that's running pretty, pretty low cost, um, but that's about what it's going to end up costing you for everything. Is that $100 in our
1: dollars? Yes,
0: dollars yeah. in, in our dollars. Okay. So um, we, ours, were, we heavily subsidized. We raised funds to help with that. Um, uh, and I'm kind of out of time here. Some of the most, um, I, this is a good one. Sometimes the most important people on the team are the translator and the pastor. You can have all kinds of good eye equipment, but if you can't talk to your patient and don't know what's going on, you just stand there and look at them. Okay, so translation is huge. And, and I take a pastor along. Um, and uh, so here's working with Maasai. I didn't know Maasai. Translation can be a big deal. Okay. Integrate your spiritual care. Okay. Um, any questions? And I'm about out of time for about one minute, two minutes. Yeah. So, um, well, the cataract surgery essentially is like tailoring all the treatment to the elderly population for the most part. Okay. So are you doing clinics that are like focusing on the needs of like the, the upcoming generation pediatric? Pediatric ophthalmology is is um, and pediatric... Um, Blindness is something that is there, and it's it's big in Africa, but so glasses is something that we need to work on, and there's a lot of work needs to be done. Low vision clinics are another one. Yeah. If we don't correct
1: really bad eyes, in turned out the
0: young yep. girls can't get married, so we'll frequently there we'll have to operate. I guess you don't have your business This is a really good point. So most of the time, we would try doing patching and stuff, and we actually had a unit that we could send them to to try and get some help with. But I can't tell you how many. I've done several cases where I did a strabismus case on a 20-year-old girl that couldn't get married, or actually, no, let me say 30, 35, that couldn't get married, which is late in Africa to get married. And... uh, because they had an esotropia of one eye turned in, all right? I'd, I'd correct that strabismus, and sometimes six months they were married. And it's, very, it's actually very dramatic. Uh, we operated one, on one in Guinea. This girl was a singer, well, uh, quite well known in the country, and she had, a, she had a strabismus. And it was the thing that really bothered her in her life and, and her ministry. And we operated on her, her eye and, and um, straightened it out. And I can't, I'll never forget the day, the day after. She had all her friends around, they were singing and carrying on, just very happy. And it, it, it is a huge it's, – it's cosmetic surgery, yes, but it's, 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 um, it's, it's very socially important, and that's why I do them. Yep. I'm
1: going to cheat. Okay. I'm Dr. Talbot. I have an eye clinic in Haiti. Probably the only one in Haiti that's not private. And I'm desperately looking for people like Sam who want to come in and work. We just did seven cataracts in my clinic, which is a lot like the picture that you showed. So it can be done. And um, I'm, an ophthalmo- I'm not an ophthalmologist. I'm an otolaryngologist. But I'm Navy-trained flight surgeon. That's how I know a little about this. So if anybody's interested in going uh, and getting into this game, it's going to grow because God wants it to. Yeah, it's true. But I'm advancing in age. The white hair is real. (laughs) And I'm hoping that people will come and pick up the thread. Uh, So I need help. If you're at all interested in going to a well-established mission in Haiti that has a fairly well-equipped eye clinic, we don't wander out into the boonies uh, yet, but um, <laughs> come see me. Are you
0: in the of it or where? where are you
1: located? located? Where, where
0: are you located?
1: I'm in the northwest part of Haiti, about 12 miles south of Port-au-Prince, about six hours, which is how you measure things in <laughs> Haiti, uh, north of Port-au-Prince.
0: Okay. In the mountains. In the mountains. Place. Yeah. Um, we are working on, on that. We're just about ready to, to distribute that. But um, I'd be happy to talk with you about that if you want to. And we're, we're, we're working on it. Do yeah. you have the goat index for the cataracts? What about for the glasses? Do you have glasses? <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a very good index for glasses. But, you know... At the risk of of having issues, I have negotiated with, with, I try and negotiate with the community. And I'll go and I'll say, this is what we usually charge. What can your community pay? And I talk with the leaders. I let them discuss it. We talk about it. And and I try and go with that um, as much as possible. And how do you downplay glaucoma? Unless you just don't look at them. I, I do look at them. And as they come across, we do what we can, but I don't go out actively trying to screen for it, okay? So, yes, every, when they come to the clinic, and I'll tell you, a lot of people doing cataract surgery short-term, they won't, even, they won't even deal with it. They say, well, we don't do anything with it. And I understand why, because, you know, the follow-up needs to be better, and if you're coming in and going out, cataract is fair, but glaucoma is a lot harder to deal with, and there can be some real issues with post-op. I do as long as I can get. Sometimes it is one day, but we try and get them to come back. And I, another key thing, try and work with someone on the ground that's local that they can, they can come back and see. Um, at least to, they can maybe refer them into the city or something if there's an issue. But, um, yeah, I try and work with somebody on the ground that at least has some basic understanding of how to look at an eye. Yes. So I do a sub-conj- uh, subconjunctival injection, antibiotic and steroid after surgery, and then we send them home with drops. Some of the time those drops get taken. Some of the time they don't get taken. And, uh, and you can, uh, thankfully, uh, with our techniques now, yes, they may come with a bit of a, back with a bit of a red eye because they didn't take their drops. But usually there's not there's not ongoing sequelae with that and problems. Wow, you all got a lot of questions. Isn't. So you're you're able to remove and then put lenses? Yes, we're putting intraocular lenses in all of them. Yeah. And the ones, the ones where I start out doing um, intricate. Let me tell you, you all, you're welcome to go if you want to because the time's up and you're welcome to, to leave if you want yeah. to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> if you want to stay around and ask some questions as long as there isn't somebody else coming in here, we can, I'm happy to do that.